True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is episode 16. The murder of Lee Matthews. This case was suggested by Jean Azel on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, Jean, and thank you for the suggestion. This case happened in 2004, and at the time it had the nation in the grips of terror. A young girl, just days from her coming of age, ripped away from her family. What followed was a roller coaster, with her family hoping beyond hope that they would get their child back. One of the main resources I used for this episode was the book Bailafalt, a dossier of a serial sleuth, by Hanley Retief. Pete Bailafalt would end up cracking this case after 150 other officers had tried and failed. But he mentions in his book that, although he closed the case, it was never really closed in his heart. This case has an ending. But it's not closure, because somewhere out there, a few people may just have gotten away with murder. Let's get into episode 16, The Murder of Lee Matthews. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. On the evening of Thursday, the 8th of July, 2004, the Matthews family celebrated the 21st birthday of their daughter, Lee. They had dinner at a Chinese restaurant in Cyril Dean, with close friends and family. It was a low-key affair, because the real party was going to be held that Saturday night. Pretty blonde accounting student Lee had planned the event to a tea. She'd chosen the theme, Pirates of the Caribbean, and the party was going to be held at the Witz Club. At the dinner that night, Lee's parents had given her a Tanzanite ring as her gift. They had coffee and cake at their home in Four Ways, the house was upmarket, but unassuming. Rob Matthews, Lee's father, was a successful IT entrepreneur, and the family, including Mom Sharon and Lee's older sister Karen, were well cared for. No one that knew the family at the time would ever have said that the girls were spoiled, though. They were kind and well-loved by their friends. After the excitement of her birthday dinner, the Matthews family all retired to bed. It was the last time they would do so together. On Friday morning, Lee dressed in jeans, a rust-coloured sweater and a black leather jacket. July in Johannesburg is cold, with early morning temperatures often in single digits. Lee slipped her birthday gift, the Tanzanite ring, into the pocket of her jeans. I think this says a lot about the type of person Lee was. 
Most young girls would be eager to walk around flashing that ring to their friends at college. Lee, however, was more concerned about keeping it safe. Ready to face the day at college, and looking forward to a friend's birthday party which was being held that night, Lee got into a car and headed towards Bond University. The university campus was in Morningside, Sanson, and interestingly, it closed its doors at the end of 2004. The campus at the time was well-placed, close to Benmore Shopping Centre, so the students would often pop over there between classes. The campus was secured with security guards at the gate. Lee drove in, showing her student card to guards, and parked in the students' parking lot. Lee had planned to meet two friends at the shopping centre at 11 o'clock, as they wanted to purchase a joint birthday present for another friend. Shortly after arriving at campus, Lee realised that she still had her mother's credit card in her wallet. She texted her mother and they arranged to meet at 10 o'clock in the university parking lot so that her mother could get her card back. Her mom arrived promptly, but Lee wasn't waiting in the parking lot. Sharon phoned her, but she didn't answer. Her texts remained unanswered as well. Later, one of Lee's friends would say that she'd seen her walking towards the parking lot around 10 o'clock, and that she'd been alone. Another witness said that they'd seen Lee talking to a man they didn't recognise. Sharon, thinking that perhaps her daughter had been held up in class, occupied a parking space and waited. She started calling Lee's phone every few minutes. It continued to ring without answer until, eventually, it was answered, but it wasn't Lee's voice on the other side. It was a man. He told Sharon that he'd kidnapped Lee. Sharon recalls initially laughing. She thought it was one of Lee's friends playing a prank on her. The man was angry, though. He wasn't joking, and he told Sharon that he wouldn't hesitate to kill her daughter if she didn't do exactly what he said. Sharon became hysterical and realised that Lee's car was not in the parking lot. She phoned her husband and repeated the terrifying conversation she just had. I cannot even imagine how this call could have gone. Imagine being Rob Matthews for a minute. You're having a very normal Friday at work. Maybe you're in a meeting or you're with a client. Your phone rings and your wife's name flashes on the screen. Sure, it must be something about the upcoming party. You think about calling her back later, for a brief minute, but then answer. Family comes first. Your wife is almost unintelligible with hysteria. Your child, the child you just celebrated a coming of age with, has been kidnapped. Rob Matthews called Lee's cell phone, and a man answered. He very calmly demanded 300,000 rand in return for Lee's life. He warned Rob that if he involved the police, Lee would die. Rob would later say that the man sounded very professional. Rob Matthews drove to two different branches of Standard Bank and withdrew 300,000 rand in cash. While he was driving, he contacted a private investigation company, Revert Risk Management. 
he arranged to meet one of the PIs at a petrol station in William Nickel Drive. The PI highly recommended that they get the police involved. He made a call, and within half an hour, Superintendent Dion Skiapas arrived at the petrol station. He listened to Rob's story, and then suggested that he tell the kidnapper he could only get his hands on 50,000 rand. While this was happening, Lee was given the opportunity to phone her mother. Through tears, she told her mother that she was physically unharmed, but begged her mother to listen to the kidnapper and not involve the police. Rob received calls from the kidnapper on several occasions while he was arranging the money and meeting with the PIs and police. The kidnapper eventually agreed to accept 50,000 rand. A drop-off was arranged for the money at the R558 off-ramp near Grasmere Toll Plaza at 8 o'clock that night. A policeman was hidden in the back of Rob's vehicle. Rob had the money in an envelope on the passenger seat next to him. About one kilometre from the drop-off point, Rob suddenly became terrified that the kidnapper would see the policeman in the back seat and kill Lee. He pulled over on the side of the highway and told the policeman to get out. He did, and Rob continued on alone. He was so nervous that he drove past the drop-off point. The kidnapper phoned him almost immediately and demanded to know what he was doing. Rob recalled that the kidnapper lost his cool for the first time. He swore at Rob, and as he dropped his guard, Rob heard what sounded like an accent. Rob turned around at the very next off-ramp and made his way back onto the highway. He pulled over at the drop-off spot and flashed his lights three times. That was the signal they'd agreed on. A figure moved through the darkness, and there was a knock on the rear window. Rob opened the passenger window and threw the envelope out the window. The kidnapper instructed him to drive. Rob drove back slowly, expecting any minutes for his phone to ring and the kidnapper to tell him where he could find his daughter. Fifty minutes ticked by with no call. Rob called Lee's cell phone. It was switched off. He tried another six times to no avail. At 25 minutes past 11, he tried for the last time and then started to fear the worst. Police had immediately formed a task force of 15 policemen and set up an office in the Joint Operations Centre at Johannesburg Police Station. The Joint Operations Centre was set up to specially serve as a centre of communications for emergencies. Also on the task force were specially trained hostage negotiators and the PIs had been included to increase manpower. A soundproof room was set up to record any further phone calls from the kidnapper, but no call ever came. On Saturday evening, when Rob and Sharon Matthews were supposed to be sharing a night of celebration with their daughter, they were instead standing in front of a throng of media about to give a press conference to announce her kidnapping. Rob told the media that the kidnapper had told him he was from Libya and he had an accent when he lost his temper, indicating that perhaps his normal speaking voice was accented. 
Rob pleaded to the kidnappers through the gathered journalists. Quote, Please let her go. Please. We've been to Hull and back, and that's only half the journey. End quote. The media went into a frenzy. Forty hours after Lee's abduction, the Matthews held another press conference. This time, Rob was losing his cool. What kind of people do this to others? Do they have no pity? Even bad people must have some feelings, he said. The tip line exploded. The task force had to be increased to 150 members of the police force. There was allegedly even a copycat kidnapping. I couldn't find any information online about a copycat kidnapping, though. As they often do, many psychic mediums offered their services in finding Lee. The operation centre had three landlines that were manned 24 hours a day. They rang almost constantly. The country was obsessed with the story of this kidnapped young girl, her doe eyes beguiled from the front pages of newspapers. Rob and Sharon Matthews were at the operation centre almost 24 hours a day, only leaving in shifts to get some sleep and buy takeaways for all of the policemen working their daughter's case. The Matthews would later say that all of them became like one big family, with one single goal, to get Lee back alive and unharmed. Lee's cell phone was triangulated, and the signal had bounced off cell towers in the Walkerville area. Walkerville is an area surrounded mainly by plots in the Midval area of Gauteng. Helicopters, huge search teams, and the police's equestrian unit searched the area. A monumental feat. Nothing was found. On the 21st of July, 12 days after Lee Matthews was kidnapped, a man was harvesting grass in the walkable area for his thatch repair business, when, near a large anthill, he came across the naked body of a young white female. He ran to a nearby pub and police were called. A 50 square metre area around the body was cordoned off. Detectives arrived and confirmed the identity of the victim. It was Lee Matthews. She had been shot four times and her body was in the very early stages of decomposition. Her hair and body were clean. There was no sign that animals had come across her body yet, but a single spider had started to spin a web between her legs. Beneath the web lay four bullet cartridges. She hadn't been laying in that spot for very long. It would later be determined that she also hadn't been killed there. There was no blood. The bullet casings were perfectly grouped together as though someone had placed them there. Rob and Sharon Matthews were given the most devastating news of their lives, and the very next day, they awoke to face a newspaper headline proclaiming that if Rob had just paid the full amount, his daughter might not be dead. The task force let the hostage negotiators go, and what was once a recovery operation turned into a murder investigation. For a month, the police followed up every lead they could find, with no success, working seven days a week.
eventually, on the 21st of August, the team were allowed to take their first weekend off. The powers that be conferred, and the case was handed over to Captain Pitt Bailefelt on the 24th of August. Bailefelt followed his usual investigative routine. He ignored the boxes of documents that were unceremoniously offloaded at his desk, and he went back to the scene of the crime. Bond University was secure, and Lee's family and friends all told him that Lee was very safety conscious. She would never get into a car with a stranger. All the visitors to the university on the day of Lee's disappearance were checked out, so in Bellefeld's mind, that left only one possibility. Lee was taken by someone she knew, and that person was a student at Bond University. Going off Rob's statements that the man he had spoken to had an Indian accent, Bailafeld pulled the school's records and checked for all of the students of Indian descent. Among the names was 24-year-old Donovan Mudley. Bailafeld started to look into Mudley and found that he lived with his parents in Randburg. He had attended Bond University since the beginning of the year, and before that, he worked for a company for three years in the finance department. Bailafelt would later discover that Moodley had been fired from the company for fraud. The company hadn't had enough evidence to lay charges with the police, though. Bailafelt thought that the kidnapper would have needed somewhere close by to lay low in case the kidnapping had immediately resulted in a major police presence in the area. On a hunch he checked the records of the closest Formula One hotel. Sure enough, Donovan Moodley had used his own name, ID number and vehicle registration to book a room at the hotel. He checked in on the 6th of July and paid for two nights, then returned to pay for another two nights. He was checked into the Formula One hotel until the 9th of July. He had used a credit card to pay and Bailafelt then checked his credit card records. Donovan Midley had made three large deposits into his credit card in the month of July. On the 15th of July, he deposited 17,000 rand. On the 27th of July, he made two deposits, one of 14,000 and another of 4,000 rand. Checking vehicles registered to his name, he discovered that Moodley also had a Ducati motorcycle, which had been damaged in an accident the previous month. The bill for repairs was 38,000 rand, but on the 28th of July, Moodley had phoned the dealer's repair workshop and told them that, quote, a deal has gone wrong and I can't afford to pay that, end quote. Moodley was a regular customer, so they negotiated the cost down to 16,000 rand. In the days after Lee Matthews' ransom had been paid, Donovan Moodley had been on a spending spree. He bought designer shoes and went to expensive restaurants. He spent 1,000 rand at a car dealership. About a month after Lee was murdered, Donovan took his girlfriend and another couple on holiday to Durban where he hired a yacht for the night and he proposed to his girlfriend. 
the ring would later be confirmed to have been purchased with the ransom money. Lee's car had been discovered abandoned in a park a few days after she'd gone missing. In the vehicle were lotto tickets with unidentified fingerprints. Also a piece of brown duct tape was found near Lee's body, also with unidentified fingerprints. Bailafeld ran them against Moodley's fingerprints, and they matched. He had his man. Bailafeld was convinced that they were accomplices, though, so he didn't rush to arrest Moodley. He placed him under surveillance and pulled his cell phone records. Moodley's movements on the day of the kidnapping directly lined up with the movements of Lee's cell phone, and presumably Lee herself. Moodley had been on the phone with several of his friends around the time of Lee's kidnapping and shortly after. Bailafel tracked the cell phone movements of the most frequently called number, a childhood friend of Moodley's, we'll call him KM, and his cell phone was in the same place that the ransom drop-off had been done, at the same time it was being made. Donovan Moodley had a small business running, through which he rented pool tables to local bars. Around the time that Lee was being kidnapped, he phoned his business partner and his sister's boyfriend. He phoned his fiancée a few hours later, and she left work early and went to an address in Lanasia, which is not far from Walkerville. As I mentioned earlier, Lee's body was in the early stages of decomposition when she was found. She had not lain in that field for 12 days. There was something else on Lee's body that made Bailafelt suspicious. She had freezer burn on part of her hand and part of her foot. She had been kept in a cooling facility. It is believed that Lee Matthews was killed within hours of being kidnapped, most likely before the ransom was even paid. Then she was kept somewhere for 12 days, while her parents lived the greatest nightmare of their lives, and then she'd been dumped in a field in Walkerville. She had very likely only been in that field for a few hours when her body was discovered. Bailafel discovered that a friend of Moodley's owned a mortuary. The premises were searched, but no evidence was found that Lee had ever been there. Donovan Moodley was arrested on the 4th of October 2004, as he was leaving his parents' home to go to the gym. Bailafelt and his team had staked out the house from four o'clock that morning until Moodley left the house at nine o'clock. As Bailafelt removed him from his vehicle, Moodley's first words to him were, What took you so long? I've been expecting you. Moodley would later claim that when he saw in the newspapers that Bailafelt had been assigned to the case, he knew he didn't have much time. He shook as the police placed handcuffs and leg irons on him. Moodley confessed to Bailafelt almost immediately and gave his version of events. He claimed that he had asked Lee for a lift that day, and when they were driving, he'd pulled a gun on her and forced her to drive to a nearby park. He had tied her up and placed her in the boot of her vehicle, and then he'd gone back to the university to get his vehicle. He then put Lee into his vehicle and drove away. He then claimed that he'd gotten scared because there was so much media attention and decided to kill her. 
he made her get undressed, so that her clothes would not have any evidence on them. He claims that he gave her a blanket and then drove her to a place in Walkerville, where her body was found. He said that they sat and spoke in the car for a while, and then she said she needed to go to the toilet, so he'd let her go near some trees, and then he shot her. He later showed police an area where he'd burned Lee's clothing, car keys and cell phone. He told Bailefeld that after he killed Lee, he remembered that she'd told him about the ring her parents had given her for her birthday. He returned to the scene where he'd burned the clothing and retrieved the ring from the jeans. It was later found hidden in a CD case in his bedroom. Donovan Moodley is lying through his teeth. Lee Matthews was not killed in that field in Walkerville. She was killed at another, still unknown, location. Then she was stored in a cooling facility for 12 days. He is also lying about her position when he shot her. Lee was killed by the first bullet that entered her, and that was a shot from behind her, which entered behind her left ear. Another headshot was then incurred. Lee was in a seated position when both of these shots happened. After she was dead, another two shots were fired into her chest. Woodley then gathered the cartridges, which it must have taken quite some time, and kept them so that he could pose the scene when he dumped her 12 days later. There was also a gash on Lee's head, where it looked like she'd struggled against a knife. Moodley claims to have had no idea about this injury. Moodley pointed out the scene where he'd left Lee's body, and the scene where he burned her clothing. Bailefeld then took him to his parents' house, where he handed over the murder weapon. There was also a computer disc on which he'd written letters of apology to his parents and girlfriend. He asked for a few minutes with his parents, and dropped to his knees in front of them confessing that he had murdered someone. When his mother asked him who he had murdered, he replied, Lee Matthews. His mother became hysterical. She would later say that she had seen Lee's story in the newspaper and prayed for her parents every night. Little did she know that her own child was responsible for their pain. Donovan Moodley stood trial in Johannesburg High Court in 2005. He pleaded guilty to all of the charges against him. His trial lasted just two days. In his pre-sentencing hearing, experts testified to prove that he was lying and that there was considerable possibility that at least five other people were involved in the abduction and Moodley was protecting these people. Donovan Moodley was sentenced to 40 years in prison. He will be released at the age of 65. The Matthews family were happy with the sentence. Donovan Moodley's father testified on his behalf in the pre-sentencing hearing. He did not ask for a reduction in sentence. He simply spoke about the man that he had known as his son and expressed how he felt as though he was responsible for Donovan's actions, because he was his father. Rob Matthews expressed how the family's lives had been completely torn apart. 
He stated that it was difficult for them to accept that they'd never see their daughter again. And when he saw a girl that looked similar to Lee, his heart would jump for a second, thinking that just maybe it could have all been a horrible mistake. When he left the witness stand, he shook hands with Donovan Moodley's father. Sharon Matthews would later say that they felt bad for Donovan's parents, as they had lost a child too. In 2010, Donovan Moodley attempted to appeal the length of his sentence. His appeal was denied. In 2011, when Pitt Bailefeld's book was published, it revealed for the first time that there was evidence pointing to the fact that Lee had not been the first person that Moodley had kidnapped. When Bailefeld looked at Moodley's financial records, he saw a deposit of 92,000 rand in January 2004. Moodley claimed that this came from his pool table rental business, but with only two pool tables out on rental at the time, the numbers just didn't add up. Bailefeld strongly believes that he was so organised and professional because he had kidnapped others. He got paid ransoms and released the people. Those people most likely just went back to their lives, grateful to be safe and not willing to tempt fate by contacting police. No accomplices were ever confirmed in the kidnapping of Lee Matthews, but there is no way that Donovan Moodley committed this crime on his own. He had accomplices, and they're still out there, and maybe they carried on with the business of kidnapping. Moodley claimed that he had only killed Lee because of the intense media pressure and the fact that he realised she could identify him. Again, I call bullshit on that. Donovan Moodley knew Lee Matthews. His cell phone number was found in her phone records on one occasion three months before she died. On the day that he took Lee, I believe he already knew that he was going to kill her. He saw a big payday, possibly his biggest so far. If he could secure the 300,000 rand ransom he wanted, he kept her alive long enough to use her to plead her case to her mother and provide proof of life to encourage the handover of the ransom. And then he killed her, probably soon after she last spoke to her mother and before her father had handed over the cash. I downloaded the judgment document for this case from Safley, and in it the judge also confirmed that it has been proven that there had to have been others involved in the crime. He also believed that Moodley had never shown any remorse. I don't know why Donovan Moodley refuses to give up his accomplices. He could have used that as collateral to reduce the sentence. I seriously doubt that he is trying to be noble. After all, there is no honour among thieves, and that likely includes, by default, kidnappers and murderers. More likely, he knows that if he's going to be in jail for 40 years, he needs to have something hanging over a few people's heads on the outside, so that they can get things for him, and do things that he can't do. Either way, there are five people, and two locations out there, that still have not been identified. Lee's parents started the Lee Matthews Trust 
which has aided in funding two trauma centres, one in Soweto and one in Randburg, for the victims of crime and their families to receive free trauma counselling. This is therefore Lee's legacy, that others will receive assistance when greedy men like Moodley come knocking on their doors. Lee was a popular girl, but she had her head on her shoulders. She was on track to a successful career as a chartered accountant, and she was a beautiful human being, who Donovan Moodley had no right to take away from those who loved her. Thank you for listening to episode 16, The Murder of Lee Matthews. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with another full episode as your December bonus. Until then, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.